So you meet a woman online. I love her. I just love her. But it turns out thousands of other people are in love with her too. Janessa Brasil. Janessa Brazil. Janessa Brazil. One woman's image is being used by criminals to target innocent people looking for love online. You win their hearts, you win their wallets. Love, Janessa. My wild quest to find her. The unwitting human face of a digital con from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. This is a CBC podcast. For a couple of generations of Canadians, that music needs no introduction. Mr. Dressup was a mainstay of children's television programming at CBC for 29 seasons. The iconic show and Mr. Dressup himself, Ernie Coombs, are the focus of a documentary that premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival this year. Rob McCallum is the director of that film. Matt Galloway spoke with him in September. Here's that conversation. It's like a time machine listening to that. I love it. I had to spend some time with the treehouse downstairs in the lobby just to get ready. The amazing thing about being in this building, in the uh, broadcasting center, is that in the atrium is Mr. Dressup's treehouse. That's right. And people will come and will come into the building and stand in front of the treehouse and take a photo beside it because they can't believe that the thing that they grew up watching is actually there in front of them. Right there, accessible, just like when Ernie would tour across the country. He was there. He wasn't stuck in a TV. You too can come and check out the treehouse in the lobby. What did that program mean to you when you were growing up? Everything. It was, a, And you'll get the same answer from every Canadian you, you talk to. It's everything. It was a staple of who they were. It's a staple of who I am. It taught me everything about creativity and creative exploration, that there are no mistakes. It's just an adventure, whether it's with a pair of scissors or a pen or a pencil. And a story doesn't always have to be the same the second time over. You can improvise. You can add tweaks to it. And life is full of unending imaginative possibilities. And for a kid, that agency, wow. You can do anything. Awesome. There are people who will have never seen this program. Describe what they would see when they when they turned on Mr. Dressup. They would see a loving, uh, grandfatherly type person interacting with neighborhood friends, some of which may be puppets, may be live people like him, all interacting in an, uh, an inclusive, communal way, helping each other and having fun with no agenda, just kind of being kind with one another and enjoying the company of one another and getting creative for the sake of creativity. How unusual was what you saw in that program compared to what else was on for children's television at that time? It was very similar in some regards, right? It comes from a TV format from the 60s and 50s where you typically have an older male gentleman host with some sort of puppet sidekick. Mm -hmm. The production values aren't anything flashy or snazzy. There isn't a lot of camera movement. But it's within that box that things begin to change. Of course, Ernie and Fred Rogers were best friends. Fred Rogers was his mentor. So there's a, a, similar, a similarity with those philosophies. But where Fred has a meaning and a message that's very clear at the beginning of every show in, in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Ernie's message was a little bit different. His was discovered through play. And it was always it provoked through imagination. You didn't have to take a trolley to go to the imaginary world. Imagination was around you. And that was what made Mr. Dressup unique, timeless and evergreen, and why it still works today. How did Ernie Coombs become Mr. Dressup? Oh, through a lot of trial and error. 
He wasn't Mr. Dress Up until he was 40 years old. Mm. Imagine not finding your passion or your calling until you're 40. He was happy to do anything, a bit of a jobber in some regards, willing to do anything in front of the camera, behind the camera, What was he doing? I mean, there are a lot of people who don't know anything about his biographical story at all. He was uh, yearning for the spotlight as a seven-year-old. He wanted to be in school plays. He was in band. He would do anything he could in high school. He was valedictorian in his high school in Maine in America because Ernie Coombs is an American. A lot of people don't know that either. And he just wanted to do whatever he could to be creative in acting. He went to art school to become a commercial artist. That didn't quite pan out. And that's when he started going up and down the coast to be anything and anything connected to the arts, mainly theater. And he ended up eventually winding back up in Pittsburgh where he met his wife and Fred Rogers doing kids theater, anything around PBS, WQED, of course, the legendary station. That's where their two paths, you know, crisscrossed. Ernie was happy to do everything, was painting scenery, whether it's being a puppeteer, Ernie was just happy to be there. Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, spoke about Ernie Coombs. Have a listen to this. I remember some of the people saying, what are we going to do when when Mr. Rogers leaves? And I said, well, why don't you build a program around Ernie? Ernie has never forgotten the child within him. And that informs everything that he does with children. Tell us more about how and why Fred Rogers was so important to the success and the career of Ernie Coombs, Mr. Dressup. You know, they just had a shared philosophy that went beyond words. Fred Rogers was very specific about who he worked with and why he worked with them. And when he had an opportunity, literally a few days after finishing seminary school, to come up to Canada and develop his program the way he saw fit, because it wasn't going the way he wanted in Pittsburgh, he chose Ernie Coombs. He could have picked anybody that he had been working with, but there was a shared ideology, a philosophy, an appreciation for children, not as young people, not as kids, but as people that had value. Tell me more about that, because they did have, somebody says that in, in the film that they're like the Lennon and McCartney That's of, right. of kids TV. They had a similar idea of what children's television could be, right? Yeah, a shared vision and totally Lennon and McCartney, because these two people, eventually Fred comes back to the South, but Ernie stays in Canada, Mr. Dressup happens. And he becomes, you know, famous in Canada, coast to coast to coast. And Fred, same thing in America. Those two guys started a friendship over a belief that children were important and could be nurtured and use television to make them into great people. And they had an opportunity that allowed them to be dominant forces of good in children's entertainment. We often think of, you know, the talent brain drain going the other way. Our best and brightest end up down in the United States in LA and New York, what have you. How did they end up here in Canada? That's CBC, man. That's all CBC and the the vision and the foresight to do something great. CBC was the first kids department in North America. They chose to start a separate department for kids when nobody else was doing that. Which was led by a doctor. Dr. Frederick Rainsbury. He's the man. I mean, he thought, you know, kids could be, you know, entertained and they deserved more than pie in a face. Pie in a face is great. I love (laughs) pie in the face, but I love something with a little value and a little substance too. And Rainsbury brought Bob Humian, Friendly Giant, of course, Fred Rogers, and a few other Americans at the time when Americanization was a big problem in Canada. We were kind of pushing back against it. But Rainsbury, even in the face of that, said, no, these people get it. And in some ways, much like Ernie Coombs being American, but clearly being Canadian, and of course, officially becoming a Canadian later, it's the values of these people that truly made them Canadian. It's not geography. They're communal. People identify that. You know, it's almost like a new Canadian story as well. That's what makes our country so strong and so Mm. great. We can bring in people from the outside and and have it add to our own mix. 
How did he go about creating the character of Mr. Dressup? Because it, it wasn't the Ernie Coombs show. It's, it's Mr. Dressup. Yeah, and it started before Mr. Dressup show proper on a program called Butternut Square. You know, Fred Rogers had been doing Mr. Rogers and decided he was going to go back and kind of tinker a bit and make Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as we know it today. And Ernie stayed behind because he thought there was something there and there was a program they were going to develop around him. And Mr. Dressup just seemed to be that character that spoke to him because he could do so many different things, but never any kind of one thing, a bit of a Swiss army knife. You know, he could draw, he could dance, he could mime. It was the perfect uh, opportunity for him to jump into that. And so he was one of four characters in a program called Butternut Square, an ensemble piece that had a very large studio. And of course, things happened. And eventually, Mr. Dressup became a spin-off show of that where the remaining character of Mr. Dressup was transported as well as two familiar friends of his. Casey and Finnegan. Not in, not in as large of a studio, right? I mean, part of this is about trying to figure out what they could do in a small space. Isn't that what the whole creative process is, whether it's in the 1960s or now? What can we do to make an impact with what we have? Mm. So Butternut Square was forced to retool with only half the amount of space, a little bit less budget, but it was important to the kids of Canada because there was an outcry when Butternut Square was canceled. Producer Stu Gilchrist said, this is ridiculous. There was, I guess, issues raised in House of Commons. You can't count, cancel something that is so important to so many children and mothers, of course, at the time too. Because so, they, they, at that time, were at home. That's right. That's right. And so Stu, as a young 20-something, stood up and said, we have to do something about this. And he was able to get it through and, and show the value of what would become Mr. Dressup. What would, again, you've hinted at this, but what do you think... He, Ernie was trying to, it's still odd to call Mr. Dressup Ernie Coombs, but what was he trying to, to transmit to kids on the other side of the screen? What, was he, what, was, what were the values that he was trying to impart? That you're important, you have power through your imagination, and you have more than enough around you to feel fulfilled in the way that you need. And it's not just Ernie, right? Because he had a whole staff of writers and producers and directors. Ernie's an amazing performer. He couldn't have pulled off that naturalness if it wasn't for him. But there's a lot of people working with him to make sure those messages came across. Mm. He also had things like the tickle trunk. The idea of having a tickle trunk that you can just open up and find amazing costumes in is wonderful for a child. For 30 years, I've been able to get things like, well, like the ABC jacket. As soon as I put it on, hello, I'm Professor ABC. Would you like to learn your alphabet today? What did the tickle trunk mean? Anything. It meant anything, any possibility. If you're a kid and your life isn't maybe so great at home, you could watch a half hour, Mr. Dress Up, feel safe, learn a few things, and then you could go to your tickle trunk, which might just be the bottom of a closet, a box in the basement, or maybe some clothes that you stuffed under your bed. But you can put something on and transform and escape for a little bit and then develop that imagination. It's all problem solving to a degree using the creative power right? Mm. How important is that to give kids agency when the world is super scary now? It's also super scary then for kids. There is an innocence that's inherent to that, right? To that approach. And the, kids TV should have that, but it just stands out in terms of what, what he was trying to, to tell kids that they could do and the power that he was trying to give kids. And, and the simplicity, right? And people say, oh, that's so simple. Like it's like a throwaway concept, but simplicity is tough. If anything, we often overcomplicate things and we have to strip it back to something that's more manageable. He had simplicity in spades. And again, another reason why the show worked and why kids gravitated towards it, they could grasp that. Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. 
We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years, but this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. He also wasn't by himself, as you mentioned on the screen. Uh, He had friends, Casey, who was a child, of course, and the dog, Finnegan. What's that sound? Sounds like a paper bag. Oh, hi there, you two. You ready? Go, Finnegan. That's the puppeteer Judith Lawrence performing with Ernie Coombs on Mr. Dress Up in 1986. Judith is on the line now from Hornby Island in British Columbia. Judith, good morning. Good morning. What is it like to hear Casey's voice? (laughs) Well, it's a little strange because uh, it was such a long time doing that program, but it's also such a long time ago, and every now and then I run into people who say, oh, I remember Casey and Finnegan, and it's it's just strange to me, but but, uh, I'm getting used to it, I guess. What did those characters mean to you at that time? Well, I had been a kindergarten teacher, and I'd been a puppeteer for quite a few years, and I'd been and I've worked with preschool age children, and I always used to say that Casey was four and a half, and it was four and a half. It had to be the four and a half part, and so I kept everything at that. At least I tried to keep things at that level. And I have to say also that the children's department of the CBC in those days was spectacular. Mm. It was wonderful. And the other person who was marvelous was Bruce Attridge. And um, he was our produ- first producer. And, um, and we also had a terrific team of writers, many, some of whom had been kindergarten teachers themselves. Well, not all of them, but some of them had anyway. Um, but, but, and I was the script editor for the, for the scripts for several years. And um, so I just kept it all at the level of four-and-a-half-year-olds. What was it like working on that program? And I ask you this as somebody who watched the program as a kid. It is a huge part of of my life uh, growing up. What was it like to be there? Well, it was it was lovely. It was a lovely experience. But the thing is that the we we talk about scriptwriters, and we did have scriptwriters, people who gave us work material to work with. But in fact, the dialogue was all was ad libbed. It was it was mostly made up on the spot by Ernie and me, and um, <clears throat> we, so and I always made sure that whatever I said was at, at the level of a four-and-a-half-year-old, at least I tried to, and um, so we did, we did two rehearsals, and then we taped the program, but, but, but during those first two rehearsals, we, we ad-libbed a lot of the dialogue, and we made up a lot of the things that we, we, we I mean, we were given an outline by the script, by the script writers, of course, but we made up all the dialogue and our reaction to it, to what was happening. How did you channel a four-and-a-half-year-old? 
I don't know, to tell you the truth. Um, I guess, well, as I said, I had been a kindergarten teacher mm-hmm. and a preschool teacher, and maybe maybe was something in the back of my mind. I don't know. I don't quite know how I did it. Because I look at children's television today, and I think, oh, this doesn't... I'm, I can't see myself doing any of this. But, um, but in those days, it just it happened somehow. What was special? I mean, when you when you say you look at children's television today and you go, uh, when you, what was special about about what you were doing then? Do you think? Well, what was special was that was that we were real. I think that was it. I mean, you know, who ever heard of an old man living in a house by himself and having a couple of puppets in the tree out in the yard? For <laughs> heaven's sake! I mean, you know, it's, it's a crazy concept, really. But somehow we believe we believed in it. Ernie and I believed in it, in it, and by because we believed in it, we made it possible for people to believe in us. Mm. What was he like? You talked about improvising and coming up with mm. lines. What was he like to work with? Oh, he was very good to work with. Um, it was funny we had because we, we had a terrific relationship, working relationship, but we didn't spend time together other than that, other than in the studio. That was that, that was our relationship, and. Uh, so it was more, the relationship was really between Mr. Dressup and Casey and Finnegan, more so than between Ernie and me. I know that sounds a bit hard to believe, but anyway, that's how I think of it. I mean, it speaks, Rob, to just how important those characters were on the program. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal to see, like Judith said, the realness between them. Another huge selling point, why it, why it stood the test of time because they were real people talking back and forth, Judith's ability to channel a four-and-a-half-year-old or an alligator or a bird or whatever other puppet she is performing, and to do two characters at once, even Finnegan, whom doesn't speak except, except for to Casey, it's, it's, it's a marvelous skill to be able to do that and keep Mr. Dressup where he needs to be and cue him and still keep it fun and loose and believable. Judith, this was a question that we always asked as kids, and maybe it makes sense because Finnegan's a dog. But why didn't Finnegan own, why didn't Finnegan speak to us? The only, only, only to Casey. Well, I thought it would be very tedious to have a talking dog <laughs> talking, or you know, going on and on and on. And so I decided that it was much better to have him whisper to Casey, and then Casey interpret what he'd said. So, in other words, Casey could make up Finnegan's words if he needed to. You know, if he, if he didn't. If, he, if Casey didn't agree with something, he could just always say, well, Finnegan says such and such, but in fact, we didn't really know. There was one occasion when Finnegan whispered in Ernie's ear, mm. and of course he didn't know what he'd said. So he had to, <laughs> he had to do it through Casey, because otherwise it didn't make any sense. There's a scene in the film in which you take the puppets and you're doing a, a, a show in front of a live audience, um, a mm-hmm. puppet show. And the crowd goes crazy when, you, when, yeah. when the puppets appear through the little... How often did, did that happen? When people would come to you because they had grown up watching this program and had grown up seeing these characters and when, would come to you and talk about what, they, what those characters meant to them. Well, I remember one, one conversation I had in Newfoundland with a, with a woman I met uh, on the side of the road, actually, we were we were we were doing a tour of Newfoundland, and it was after dinner, and we were going for a stroll, and I, the, anyway, a whole lot of teenagers came and started uh, walking around 
Ernie. And, and I was standing off to the side, and there was this woman there, one of the locals, and she said, how come you ever never see the bottom of their bodies? And I said, because they're puppets. And she said, puppets? I said, yeah. She said, well, they look very real to me. <laughs> uh, and this, this was an adult person telling me this. And uh, I think, you know, that's perhaps that sums it up right there. They seemed real because you, you, made, you allowed them to be real, you know, or you wanted them to be real. What do you think the program meant to children then? Well, I, th- I think it was pretty important to children because it, we never talked down to them. We were, we were, always, we were at the level of, of a preschool child, but we were not talking down to them, and we were not patronizing them. Mm. And that was important, Rob. Yeah, it's everything, right? Yeah. When you treat a kid like a like an adult, or at least show them that they have the same, again, agency as an adult, that they have the same place in the world, it's going to make a kid yep. feel pretty important, pretty confident. And that mm-hmm. goal was pretty evident between Judith and Ernie and the writers, that kids are going to be part of our world, not a, a sub part of it. What sort of reaction, Rob, have you had to this film in being at the Toronto International Film Festival, where people might see, a, you know, as I said, we went back in the time machine hearing uh, the theme song at the beginning of our conversation. What have you heard back from people? It's overwhelming to them. It's overwhelming to me to process all their emotions that they only convey with facial expressions where they don't have the words to describe the happiness that they're feeling. And I don't have the words to convey the thanks back to them. <laughs> it's pure, uh, it's childhood flooding back, but also at a time where as an adult, they appreciate what they had and why they had it. And for the first time, almost like growing up, where you realize how much your parents did for you and you want to give back. Mm. That's the feeling that so many people have. That and thank you for handling this real, not something that's sugar-coated or, or saccharine, like it's untouchable on a pedestal. We showed what happened for real. And because it was real and inhuman, people loved it even more because there was no artifice. Judith, that must be really gratifying. It certainly is. It's, it's, after all these years, and just to think that people still have it in their minds and their hearts, it's really wonderful to me. Do you think, Rob, just finally, I mean, children's television is very different now, and Judith talked a little bit about this. Would this kind of programming speak to kids now, do you think? It's the reason the documentary exists, my friend. My kids wanted to watch something, and of course, being the smart father that I am, I had to fill their heads with the stuff that I grew up with, because dad knows best, which never (laughs) works, right? Like nine times out of ten. But I put an episode of Mr. Dress Up on, and they love all the fast zoomer CGI, you know, whiz-bang sounds with colors that don't exist in reality. And they watched Mr. Dress Up from beginning to end. Mm. And they said, yes, please, I'll have some more. And they were hooked on it. And my son turned to me and said, you know, if Scarlett, his two-year-old sister, watches this and continues to watch it, maybe she'll grow up and be a good person. It works today because it worked then. The Three Little Pigs is brand new to anybody when they watch it for the first time. So is creativity. It's infectious. Judith, I grew up watching you, not knowing you, never really seeing you, but seeing what you had created. Um, And it's a real pleasure to have the chance to meet you and to talk about um, the impact of that. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And Rob, thanks for the film. Thank you. Judith Lawrence is the creator, voice, and puppeteer behind Casey and Finnegan. Rob McCallum is the director of Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make Believe. The film had its premiere at TIFF in September and is available on Amazon Prime. 
Matt Galloway spoke with them in September. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.